Heavenly Father, we now come to the time of the teaching of your word, not the word of man, but the word of our God. Father, thank you that we have found such a great treasure in your word. Holy Spirit, we pray now that you would help us to understand your word and follow up with faithful obedience to it. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your help. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to continue and close today with our teaching on 1 Corinthians 13. And then we're going to partake at the the table. And I like that, how we end on the book of love and get to uh, take communion together. Um, I didn't get as far as I wanted last week, so we will finish this week, and I promise I'll have, I'll have you out of here by at least four. Okay. I appreciate your love. Walking in patience with me? I'm, I'm just playing with you. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you take that, turn to that, and uh, stand please as we read this chapter. The word of God reads as followed. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understanding, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. And as for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall fully know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. This seems the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Like how the Apostle Paul says here, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, like I prayed earlier, you know that one day awaits those who are saved that there will be a place where there's no sin. We will no longer need to look through the Bible and through a dimly mirror. We will actually see face to face the resurrected Christ. We will see him. We will talk with him. That brings me great joy. So we, uh, we left off last week, I believe, at love. It does not insist on its own way, so we're going to get right into it and cover a lot here. We'll start off with, it is not irritable. Love is not irritable. How many of you have been irritated by people? You irritate me. This word irritable, it actually means to arouse to anger. It it has the meaning of somebody who is quick-tempered. Love does not fly off the handle and become angry quickly. I remember... Back in my days, I was very impatient and and had an anger problem. And one of my friends came up and asked me, he said, what do do you like about anger? I said, nothing. I I hate it. I wish I didn't have it. He goes, no, I mean, there must be something you like because you're constantly angry. And I I thought about that, and and it was true. I I guess I liked the rush or how it felt. But but anyways, being quick-tempered does not show love. It shows the opposite. It it, it means a sudden outburst of emotions or actions. These are things that are done against us or personal offenses. When, When things happen to us or people personally offend us, love does not become quick tempered and angry. 
A fool does that. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 17, a man of quick, a man of quick temper acts foolishly. How many of you have proven that to be true? You ever fell off the handle and became angry real quick and punched a wall and then you broke your hand? <laughs> or, or you're spoken because you got angry just like that and bam, out came a word and it destroyed and hurt that person and that person is, is crying and now you're like, I don't even care about that. A quick-tempered person, when that, when that level reaches that, that anger, bam, you just fly off. A man of quick temper acts foolishly and a man of evil devices is hated. That's the word of God. First Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 21. For to this you have been called, Pacific Hope. I added that. <laughs> For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he what? Did not revile in return. When he suffered, he what? He did not threaten. If anybody had the right to do that, it would have been him. The first soldier that spit in his face, Jesus could immediately say, do you just know who you did that to? Here, let me just show everybody who I am and just turn you into ashes. He could have done that. They pulled his beard, they spit in his face, they punched him in the mouth, and he didn't say one word. He was led like a lamb to slaughter, didn't utter one thing and respond. He but continued entrusting himself to him who judged justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. So when somebody does something to us, we don't respond angrily and we don't retaliate and get irritable. Heathens do that. People that walk in love don't. And the Corinthians were known for this. They would get upset and cause fights and, and yell at people and, and, and all that sorts of stuff. And Paul was showing them and he's telling us that love does not act that way. We must be willing to endure hardships and insults even as Christ did. And of course, we expect it from the world out there that are non-believers because that's what they do. But it's more difficult when a brother or sister brings an insult or an offense to you. Even when that happens, love is not irritable. It does not become angry quickly. It trusts that insult to the Father who judges righteously. And it doesn't go, okay, I'm just going to trust God that God will get back at you one day. And we'll get, get into that a little bit later. James chapter 4, start in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Let's stop right there for a second. Ask yourself this question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Why do you get mad? Why do you get quick-tempered? Why does that happen in your life? I'll tell you, the more, the more you read the Bible, the more it is so true. It goes on to say, Is it not that your passions are at war within you and you desire and you do not have, so you murder and you get angry? It's selfishness. Because you didn't get what you want or because the person didn't respond the way you want them to, you all automatically get mad just like that and you let them have it. That's not walking in love. That's not Christ-like. Telling your wives or your husbands that you love them but are constantly yelling at them and putting them down shows them that you really don't. Matter of fact, when you yell at your spouse or you yell at one another, what that is actually showing is you don't love them. That's what Paul is saying here. If you say you love your children, but you're constantly yelling at them and putting them down because they've interfered with your plans or, or whatever they've done, they've gotten in your way, that doesn't show them that you love them. Did you get that? Love is not irritable. It does not fly off the handle and jump out and lash out at people. Then it goes on and says that love is not resentful. This is an accounting word. I, the better trans, uh, translation I like is love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not keep score. 
It doesn't write down what the other person has done to them and file it away so that they can go back and look at it and remember it. Love doesn't do that. Love never never takes or keeps an inventory or an accounting of the wrongs done. Barclay says that one of the great arts in life is to learn what to forget. We have to learn to put things that have happened to us under the blood. And I'm not making light of anything that has happened to you, smaller or great. But we must learn to forgive and forgive quickly. Love does not keep an account of what you've done. Love does not say, okay, there you go, you did it to me again. You did that back in 2004, now you're doing it again right now. You're never going to change. That's not what love does. Love does not keep score. It does not keep account. One married man said this to his friend. You know, every time my wife and I get into a conflict, she gets historical. His friend said, his friend said historical? Don't you mean hysterical? No, I mean historical. She rehearses everything I've ever done wrong in the whole history of our marriage. That is not love. Love does not rehearse. It doesn't constantly keep going back and remembering of what was done to you. It forgives. It believes the best in the person. Let's look at God and the scriptures and how he handled this. Let me ask you a question real quick before we get into the scriptures. How would you like it if God kept score with you? How would you like it if God just kept track of all the wrongs that you've ever done to him? But he doesn't do that. Even though we sin today, even though we disobey, even though we worship idols, he forgives us and he never, ever brings it up. He will never ever bring that up to you. He will never remind you of what you've done to him. So if God deals with us that way, how should we deal with one another? The exact same way. Romans chapter 4 verse 8. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Thank God that he does not keep a list of my sin. That would be a long piece of paper. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Isn't that amazing? He does not count our trespasses against him. He is so loving and so kind and so merciful, always forgiving and faithful. And we're to be imitators of that. So when people do us wrong, we don't respond like that. Someone said that love does not forgive and forget, but rather remembers and still forgives. Let me read that again. I don't know who said this. I just found it somewhere. Love does not forgive and forget, but rather remembers and still forgives. You know, there are some things that are difficult to just not remember. There there are hard things that have happened to us that we're never going to forget. It's always going to be there. But this saying says here, rather it does remember it, but it still forgives. You might have had some stuff done to you in the past that has been very hurtful, harmful to you, and you still might remember that today. But are you forgiving that person for what they've done. If not, you're going to be a miserable person. When you can't forgive, when you can't let go, it's a sign that you need this kind of love, agape love, and that can only be given to you by God himself. Next it says, it does not rejoice at wrongdoings. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It actually means to be cheerful or calmly happy. Proverbs 24, 17 says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Love does not have the attitude of, (laughs) it's about time, he finally got what he deserved. 
good for him. That's not how love acts. That's rotten. You shouldn't have that in you. When an enemy or somebody who's harmed us, you see something bad has happened to them. Or even God disciplines them and chastises them. Our reaction should not be cool. I'm glad. It's about time. What took you, God? It does not do that. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It also it means to, enjoy, uh, to rejoice in unrighteousness. And when you see a brother or sister walking in unrighteousness, it does not rejoice in that. To rejoice in unrighteousness is to justify it. It's making the wrong appear to be right. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, we all know this one. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Rejoicing in someone's sin or rejoicing in sin itself is wrong because it's an affront to God. It offends God. And a child of God does not rejoice when God is offended. It mourns, it grieves, it hurts. It gets angry along with God at that sin. If we love God, what offends him will offend us, right? Do we feel that way? I want to look real quick at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I don't think it's going to be up on the board, but let me read it to you. This is uh, the chapter where Paul talks about a, a man in the churches and sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother, who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such one. That was the orders to the church of Corinth Corinth, from the Apostle Paul to not even to associate with a brother who is in sexual immorality. Love does not rejoice in that. Love does not hang out with people that love to sin and offend God. And we all have to fight against that. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Rather, it says, it rejoices in the truth. It rejoices in the truth. It rejoices when a sinner repents. It rejoices when a sinner comes to grips that what he's doing is wrong. That's when we rejoice. 3 John chapter 1, verse 4 says this, Third John 4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. Love always rejoices when it sees truth win. When love wins out, love always rejoices in that. It rejoices when the sinner repents. It rejoices when their younger brother comes home from living a sinful life and asks his father to forgive him. It's not like the older brother and the prodigal son. It doesn't get jealous. It doesn't get mad. It doesn't get irritated. Love rejoices when that person repents of his sin and comes to God. That causes us great rejoice because it does God, right? And if God's heart is in us, what grieves him grieves us, and what makes him happy makes us happy. That's how it's supposed to work. But the Corinthians were lopsided in this. They rejoiced in wrongdoings. They were rejoicing when this brother was in sexual immorality. They weren't doing anything about it. Love confronts the sin. It confronts the sinner in love, hoping that reconciliation and restoration. Love does not rejoice when it sees a marriage end in divorce. It rejoices when there's restoration and reconciliation. That's when it gets happy. 2 John 6 This is a love that we walk according to his commandments. Like Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey me. When you walk obediently to the word of God and do what it says, you are walking in the love of God. You are fulfilling the law and the prophets. You are exemplifying Christ when you're walking obediently. 
Then it says that love bears all things. Love bears all things. This basically means to cover. It's like putting up a tent, putting up a roof. It actually means to protect, to keep silent about somebody or to keep it confidential. Love bears all things. Love never protects sin, but it is anxious to protect the sinner. Love does not go out and tell everybody what the sinner has done. It protects them. It keeps it confidential. It says when I won't tell anybody, that means I'm not going to tell anybody. That's what love does. Even when the person sins, love tries to correct it with the least possible hurt or harm to the guilty person. Do you do that? That's what love does. It kind of takes us back into the, the, the gossip thing, right? Love doesn't gossip. It doesn't tell the whole world. It doesn't tell the church what one individual has done. Even though he has sinned, even though he has fallen, it doesn't rejoice in that. It rejoices when he repents. But love does not go and tell somebody, hey, you know what so-and-so did? Hey, guess what I found out today? Love does not do that. That's evil. That's demonic. I hate gossip, and I know God hates gossip. It's evil. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. It bears all things. It it, it covers, it, it puts up the tent, it protects the person. And it covers all their sins. It keeps it quiet. Doesn't tell everybody that person's problems. It doesn't go and tell what my husband's doing or what my wife is doing or what my kids are doing. It keeps it confidential. Praying for that person, believing the best in that person, that God will work in them. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Why? Since love covers a multitude of sins. That's what love does. It covers the person's sin. It doesn't ignore it. It doesn't turn its head and act like it's not happening. If you see a brother sin, you go to that person in love and confront him. But it never tells anybody else what that person did because it wants to protect that person and his identity. That's what it means when love bears all things. I love this saying. It's by Henry Ward Beecher. God pardons like a mother who kisses the offense into everlasting forgetfulness. God pardons like a mother who kisses the offense into everlasting forgetfulness. God pardons it. This is actually a good saying for those of you who are thinking about marriage. Love covers the other person. It doesn't, it doesn't you know, tell the other people what that person has done. It believes the best in that person. Your future spouse will fail you. They will sin. And you're going to believe the best in that person. You're going to bear with them. You're going to grow with them. You're going to go through the trials with them. That's what it does. It covers sin. I love you so much, I didn't even notice that. That's walking in love. You offended me? I didn't even recognize it. That's what love does. Love protects, it shields, it guards, it covers, it conceals, and safeguards people from exposure. So next time somebody wants to tell you about somebody, stop them. Love doesn't do that. Remind them. Love does not do that. Doesn't gossip. Then Paul goes on and says that love believes all things. Love believes all things. And in this context, what Paul is implying here is that love sees the best in others 
or gives the other person the benefit of the doubt, choosing to believe the best about them and not the worst. It believes the best in people. No matter where they're at, no matter what they've done, it believes the best in them. Love considers the person innocent until proven guilty. And even when he or she is proven guilty, it still loves them. But it believes. It doesn't have the attitude of, that person's never going to change. I've given up hope for that. Thank God, God is not that way with us. You're, you're useless. I give up. You're never going to change. God will never, ever do that to us. And I'm thankful for that. Amen. How about Job's friends? Remember that, right? They were ready to believe the worst about Job, right? Oh, Job's got some secret sin, and this is the reason why he's suffering so badly. Job said in, 20, in Job 21, verse 27, Behold, I know your thoughts and your schemes, your schemes to wrong me. They were not believing the best in their friend. They were not supporting him. They were not there with him. They were not going through them with him. They were not mourning with him. They were not, you know, uh, making themselves a part of his lives and going through it with him. They were not believing the best in Job. They were believing the opposite. You have to be sinning. Just confess it, Job, and your suffering will end. And that wasn't the case, was it? I hope we don't have friends like that. I hope that when we Pacific Hope see somebody suffering or going through some stuff, we don't start thinking, hmm, I wonder what that person's doing wrong. It believes the best in the person. It prays for that person. It sees something in that person. Maybe that that own person doesn't see in himself. It encourages them. It prays for them. It builds them up. It edifies them. Even if they're guilty, and even if Job was guilty, Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Meaning you, you think you've got this, Master, you better watch out unless you fall yourself. But if you see a brother who has fallen into sin, you who are spiritual, your goal and hope, which is God's, is this, restoration. I want to restore you to relationship with God the Father. And it does it in a spirit of gentleness. It doesn't pound them. It doesn't get mad at them. It doesn't accuse them. It believes the best in the person. It helps them get through it. They're already feeling guilty enough to have some friends or even church members that call themselves Christians come and bash them. What they need is to be lifted up. What they need is to be prayed for. Intercede on their behalf. They're too weak to pray. You pray on their behalf. That's what love does. Love believes all things. Love not only believes the best about the person, but also about the situation. It never gives up hope about the situation. And whatever your situation is right now, your situation might look dim. Your marriage might be going through some trouble. Your kids might be causing you some heartache. Love believes the best in the situation. It has hope for it. I believe things can turn around. It might not be like that, but it believes the best in the situation. And it waits and it prays and it's patient to watch God move and work. Love doesn't jump ship. It doesn't quit. It doesn't say, I'm out of this marriage. It doesn't say, get out of the house. Love stays there. It bears. It believes the best. Agape love believes that they will eventually turn around, whether it be people or situation. I'm believing the best in you. Do you do that? Then he goes on and says that love hopes all things. Love hopes all things. MacArthur says, 
As long as God's grace is operative, human failure is never final. Amen. And amen. As long as God's grace is operative, human failure is never final. Remember Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37, I think it is? The Lord took him out in a vision and he saw a valley full of dry bones and behold, they were very dry. There was just piles of bones. There was no life. It was just death. And God asked Ezekiel a question. Son of man, can these bones live? What a question. First of all, God asking a question, he already knows the answer, right? Son of man, can these bones live? A pile of dry bones, no life at all, no way. God says, Son of man, prophesy to these bones and say to these bones, hear the word of the Lord. And as Ezekiel was obedient to God, these bones began to move. And life began to enter into those dry bones. And those dry bones became became a great nation. Let me ask you this question. Your situation, your marriage, whatever it is, it might be nothing but a bunch of dry bones, dead. No life, no nothing. I ask you this question. Can these bones live? Can your marriage live? Can your situation survive? Can it change? Absolutely it can. As long as God's grace is operative, human failure is never final. God's grace can do mighty works. There is no death too deep for a resurrection by Jesus at all. So whatever your situation is, love does not lose hope. A hopeless person is a miserable person. It's a Romans 8.28 attitude. And we know that for those who love God and called according to his purpose, that he causes all things to work together for good. In all situations, no matter what it is, no matter what it might be, I know that God will work this out for his good and my good. Though we might have to go through some hard times, some struggles, some pains, some tears, some lonely nights, I know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that? Do you hope for all things? Have you lost hope this morning? I pray that this word would encourage you. Love hopes all things. You know, I thought about it. We are what? Pacific what? Hope. We are Pacific hope. Hope is patient. It's waiting for positive results that eventually may be realized. God would, not take, God would not take Israel's failure as final. Jesus would not take Peter's failure as final. And God would not take the Corinthians' failure as final. And we do not take things as final. There's hope in people. There's hope in your marriage. There's hope in your children. There's hope in you. There's hope in a church that is going through trials. There's hope. And love hopes all things. Agape love, like I said earlier, it never quits. When you quit, you don't see the reward. When you quit, you do not see what God can do in a situation. I have seen marriages that were a pen away from divorce, writing on the paper. And they trusted God, and they endured And God has made that marriage blossom and using it for his glory. That's what the grace of God does. I'm not leaving. I am staying. I'm not leaving this marriage. I'm not leaving this church. Though something might have happened, a difficulty might have arisen, somebody may have offended you. Love hopes all things and it says, I'm staying. I'm going to see God work a miracle. I believe in what God's doing here. It doesn't leave. It doesn't jump ship. Can you imagine if we never gave up praying? 
See, our problem is we, we, we're, we're, we're good and quick starters, but we're horrible finishers, right? We start out praying, fired up, I'm going to see God work, and then all of a sudden, a week later, nothing's happened, and all of a sudden, you're like, ah, oh, I'm weary, I'm tired, God, where are you? When are you going to show up? He's never going to show up in your timing. It's not going to be like McDonald's where you place your order and get your food in 50 seconds. He's making you. He's conforming you into the image of his son. Don't lose hope. Whatever you're going through, I plead with you, don't give up. Believe God Walk in obedience to his word and give God glory for the victory. You will see his hand in it. Faith is not knowing that God can. It's knowing that God will. See the difference? God can do anything, of course. Faith is knowing God will. He'll do it. I'll see it. Might have to wait. I'll believe. I'll endure. But I'm going to see God come through. That's what love hopes all things. I said I'll get you out of here by four, right? Okay. Love endures all things. This is a difficult one. Enduring. Endure. It was a military term used of an army's holding a vital position at all costs. I'm going to stay at my position and no matter what comes at me, I'm going to remain here. I'm not going to leave. Refers to an endurance of setbacks and rebuffs which never gives up on people, whatever they do. Love holds fast to those it loves. It endures all things at all costs. It stands against overwhelming opposition and refuses to stop bearing or stop believing or stop hoping. Love will never stop loving. It's set. I'm not leaving. I'm not moving. It endures. No matter what opposition comes at you, it endures. No matter what the enemy or what people may do to you or throw at you, love endures it. It entrusts it to a faithful God. James chapter 1. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, which is another word for endurance. And let steadfastness or endurance have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Are you counting it all joy through the trials you're going through? Are you considering it? pondering it, that God is doing something in you, God is working in you, he's teaching you how to agape love, you don't learn agape love when everybody's nice and loving to you, you learn it out in the world where people are rude and hateful and do mean things to you, that's when you use this love to show them the love of Christ and in the church. It endures. God is not so concerned about you getting your ter- to your destination as much as he is as making you in the process. He wants to conform us into the image of his son. And he does that through many ways that he sees fit. Through trials, tribulations, persecution, hardships, He'll put people in your lives that are not friendly and he'll work on your character. He'll put people that are unloving in your path so that you will demonstrate this love. He'll draw it out of you. He'll pull it out of you. These last three weeks, we have learned what love is, how love responds. I pray that it's just not a message you want to hear, but that you are actually putting this into practice. And you are exemplifying it with one another. Especially in here. We also need to do it out there. But in here, we have to do that. 
we love one another. We're the sons and daughters of the Most High God who is love. And we are love if we abide in him. Last but not least, I'm going to close here. Love never ends. It never ends. Love is eternal. If you go on in 1 Corinthians 13, it talks about faith and hope, which are great things. The Apostle Paul wrote many things about faith and hope. But he says in the end, those two will will, will go away. In heaven, you're not going to need faith or hope. But love, you will always have. It never ends. Love will never stop. Love is the supreme characteristic of God himself. And therefore, Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And how are we to imitate him? Next line. And walk in love. That means live. Your lifestyle is continually a lifestyle of love. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself, himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Christ gave himself for us. Therefore, in return, we give ourselves to him and to each other. I give you myself. However you see fit to use me, use me. I'm here for you. I'm here to help you. I'm here to encourage you. I'm here to build you up. That's what we do. That's what love does. Are you walking in this kind of love? Do you demonstrate this type of love to each other, to your family members, to your mother and fathers, children? Are you demonstrating this love to your parents, older kids? Pacific Hope, we could have the best church, we could have the best doctrine, the correct doctrine, we could have the greatest ministries, we could have the best worship team, we could have the finest building, we could know all the answers, all prophecy, all faith, we could give our bodies to be burned, we could be martyrs, but if we do not have love, we are nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's useless. Love is a characteristic of God and it is going to be the characteristic of us. Amen? And and I'm thankful that we're about to partake of the table as we close out this chapter on love. And, uh, you know, honestly, I, I never really knew what this was about. I thought in my younger days, you know, people were just handing out snacks. I, I, I didn't know what this was about. But since I have gone through the Corinthians, this, this whole book, I truly see what this is about. And this is no easy matter here. This is something, something of extreme importance that we're about to partake in. It's not to be considered lightly. And I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. When Paul was writing the Corinthians about the, the Lord's Supper, they were abusing it. They were mocking God's sacrifice. They were mocking us, not waiting for their brothers and sisters. They were getting drunk at the Lord's table. Totally abusing it. Paul writes in verse 27 of chapter 11, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of our Lord. That is a stern warning right there. 
That's a warning. Whoever comes to this table in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. He therefore exhorts them to let each person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. How do I know that I'm doing this in an unworthy manner? If any of you might have that question, I'm going to answer that for you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, Paul was telling them that the cup of blessing that we bless, is, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. We all partake of the one bread. If a believer comes to the Lord's table with anything less than the loftiest thoughts of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and anything less than total love for their brothers and sisters in Christ, you are partaking of the table in an unworthy manner. If you have hatred and resentment and bitterness towards somebody in this church and you partake of this table, you are doing it in an unworthy manner, and the Bible says you are guilty of the blood and the body. This is just is not some, like I said, easy thing. This is a very serious matter. And therefore, the Apostle Paul says, you need to examine yourselves before you do this. Before we partake, we are to give ourselves to a self-examination, looking honestly at our hearts, our attitudes towards the Lord, towards his word, and absolutely towards his people. That's what it means to examine our lives. David, Psalms 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. That's a difficult question to ask God. Because he will. And he's better than an MRI. He, he sees it clearly. There are, there are no black spots. There are no gray, gray spots with him. He sees it perfectly. Search my heart. Know my heart and try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. So before we partake, before I ask the men to to come forward and and distribute the the bread and the the cup, I'm going to pray. Please examine your heart this morning. If you know that you have unconfessed sin in you, you have anger, bitterness towards someone, you need to confess that and ask God to help you and ask God to forgive you. If you don't, please don't partake. And this also is for the children of God. These are for the people who have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for their sins. If you are here this morning and have not done that, please do not partake. It's not for you. If you want to talk about that later, I'll be willing. Mark will be here. We, we would love to talk to you about this, but do not partake of this. This is for the children of God who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? So let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father, you are great and you are greatly to be praised. You are the God of heaven and earth, the creator of all things. You are mighty and strong and powerful. Your judgment is perfect. But Lord, you are so merciful and kind and gracious and loving, tender-hearted. Lord, we love you. We're so thankful that you love us. We love you only and first because you loved us. Father, I pray that these last three weeks that we have gone through 1 Corinthians 13, it is my prayer, it is my cry that we would demonstrate your love to one another 
into a godless world. They need to see it. Father, I thank you that with you, according to Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you that you don't condemn us. But we know, Lord, that you do discipline us. You chastise us because you love us. You want to see us grow. You'll discipline us because of an attitude or a sin. But it's with the hope of restoration and reconciliation. Father, I pray that this morning as we partake of the glorious table, remembrance of your precious son and what he's done on our behalf, God, please examine our hearts and show us if there be any evil in us any bitterness, anger, resentment, unforgiveness, pride. Father, help us to forgive those who have wronged us just as you have forgiven us. For your son has told us that if we forgive our brothers and sisters of their trespasses, our heavenly father will forgive us. But if we do not, then he will not. Lord, we don't take what we're about to do lightly but we do it with fear and trembling and, and with thanksgiving. So Father, I pray that you would be glorified in all that we do and all that we say in our lifestyles, how we live and help us to remain in that love and to continue to show people your amazing love. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.